Hey, how's our level? <sighs> My levels are low. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean your energy level, love. I mean your audio level. <laughs> that fantastic gag about the massage. Oh, um, you know, how's that feeling? Oh, lower, lower. How's that feeling? <laughs> so dumb. Oh, such a dad gag. I know, but still. Hello, Chat 10 listeners. Hello. 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 How are you, Sales? <laughs> what a week. Oh, my well. God. I know. An amazing week. Now, For um, context, we're speaking on Saturday, um, the week after the weekend after the um, successful leadership spill by Malcolm Bly Turnbull. The week after our safe word became the Prime Minister. I know, which I think urgently necessitates a changing of safe word. What we've got to do is really choose someone who's not going to become Prime Minister. So I nominate, like, Scott Buckholtz. <laughs> That's our new safety word. Mm. That should do for 20, 30 years. <laughs> I reckon we could go like Harry Jenkins. Oh. <laughs> um, now uh, you've probably got several signed books by those guys that you've already turned. Already thrown out. Exactly. <laughs> I just right. love the fact that there is some person like leaping through this gungy secondhand bookshop who's just picked up a copy of Battle Lines and gone. Wow. Well, Except, know? of course, because his handwriting's so bad, you would never ever be able to decipher. It just looked That's like true. to Anwar Sadat from you know. <laughs> Terry Anglis. Do you know what was really mortifying? Was that, uh, so I was talking late in the week to Andrew Hurst, who is Tony Abbott's Deputy Chief of Staff, very, very nice chap who I've enjoyed dealing with a lot for many years. And uh, he said... Who I got papped with. Uh, the I other know. Day, incidentally. So much to discuss. Yeah. Um, and he said... We were chatting about events of the week, and then he said, oh, by the way, Salzy, my wife is a really big fan of Chat 10 Books 3, and... Um, <laughs> So you threw out that a lot. So I was sort of mortified. I mean, it's it's awful because you think, you know, Tony's had this terrible week where he's been dumped as Prime Minister and then just to make matters worse, he's learned that I've thrown out a signed yeah. copy of Battle Ordinarily, that would be a pretty safe thing because, like, he is in the papyrus age generally, Tony. <laughs> What about that big fuss about him um, tendering his resignation by fax that everyone went completely bonkers about? I know. Like Carrier Pigeon would have been. I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. More fun. Um, anyway, so uh, I have been rereading in the wake of events your quarterly essay that you wrote in what year was it? 2009, I think. You wrote a quarterly essay called yep. Stop at Nothing, The Life and Adventures of, of Malcolm Turnbull. Turnbull. Mm. And love it's really, really good. And I'm not just saying Thank it for you. eating your biscuits. It's really, <laughs> really, really good. And interestingly, given that it was now written so long ago, your observations about him have so been borne out about what his character's like and all that sort of stuff. So um, anyway, let's just, I want to just unpick it a little bit for people who perhaps haven't read it. So uh, it starts with, I think you're in Launceston with Malcolm, aren't you, in the car? Yeah, because we had to go, uh, I, I agreed to do the quarterly essay in, it must have been early 2009. and About Malcolm? About Malcolm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, he was opposition leader at the time. Yeah, and, you know, I didn't actually know him all that well um, because he'd sort of, He'd come into Parliament while I was living abroad, so I had met him a few times and talked to him a few times through the Republic debate, but I didn't—I just didn't know him fabulously well. So I went in and saw him and 
said, look, you know, I've been asked to write this thing. I really only am interested in writing it if I can have a chat to you and get some access to you. So we decided that he said, yes, you could have some off-the-record chats and then um, an on-the-record interview, which we would do at some point. And then I'd like chase him to Tasmania to do the on-the-record interview, which we did mainly in a car. There's only one on-the-record interview. Well, there was sort of two. There was one in a car driving from um, Launceston to Hobart, and then there was another chat on the plane on the way back. Mm-hmm. I left it till the very last minute to ask about the cat. <laughs> oh, the cat. Let's, yeah, okay. We just, I mean, there's so much to talk about, but I think we really need to talk about the cat first up because that section was so good. Okay, so what's the cat? Oh, look, you know, he, Malcolm Turnbull is a person who, he has this incredible range of life experiences. He's got great anecdotes because he's met everybody. So he'll just, you know, he'll say, oh, yes, you know, Rupert Murdoch this, or Conrad Black that, or, oh, of course, yes, I knew, um, you know, whomever. I mean, he's just, he's dealt through business with a lot of moguls, with a lot of leaders, you know, he's locked in court battle with the administration of, uh, Margaret Thatcher through the spy catcher case, you know, um, he's had a lot of acquaintances and he's kind of, you know, he's fallen out with a bunch of people too. Um, so there's always, and his, his own per- temperament is very, um, I mean, he's hugely intelligent, very charming, well-read, like there's a, um, you know, there's a, I think a, a, a breadth to his reading and thinking that is that surpasses almost all of his colleagues on either side of the fence. You know, you can have a conversation which goes all over the place um, in a like really intriguing way. I think that most contemporary politicians know quite a bit about politics and maybe some other stuff that they've encountered in their line of work, but you won't meet another one that can speak at great length on, you know, Doric columns or, you know, <laughs> aquaculture or, you know, like he just gets madly interested in things and then reads everything. But he's he's has had a lot of falling outs with people. So um, he gets, I think that there's often a bit of a disproportionate, like he doesn't realise how much he's annoyed or offended people and then is genuinely surprised to find they can't bear him, you know. And, and there are people dating back from his business career that he's had clashes with who just won't forgive him or, um, you know, and in that context, there are always stories that have gone around, you know, about him. I mean, I must say less so lately, sort of clashed with people less less dreadfully in recent years. I think he's sort of definitely moderated. But because um, there's a big bit of mythology around him, right. he's such a larger-than-life figure. Yeah, and I mean, you know, even as a young man, he was sort of um, memorable. Um, but... From his younger days, this story that has always ebbed around the place around him was that he had murdered his girlfriend's cat, right? And so people say, oh, have you heard the cat story? I mean, people said this to me many times when I was writing this essay. I was like, well, what the hell's the cat story? Anyway, as I write in the essay, you know, no jury could confidently convict on the allegation of the cat killing. (laughs) The reason it kind of spread around the place was I think because it was mentioned in a couple of newspapers many many years ago and um, Turnbull you know issued proceedings and I mean that obviously just whetted everybody's appetite even though um, it definitely snuffed out any coverage of the thing anyway so I've written account of the uh, the facts as they stand put it to the defendant who um, I was a bit worried would you know 
bite my head off, but it turned out to just um, have reached a stage where he could laugh about the cat allegations and right. and, and did. <laughs> so there you go. It's you know it's uh, one of those cold cases that's lost a history, but it was quite fun to um, investigate. Pretty much everyone I've covered in politics, every leader, there's always some scurrilous anecdote about oh, their private life. Yes. That is bizarre and completely improbable and utterly unprovable, but just sort of constantly gets this. Right. And that's why, you know, it doesn't appear in the newspaper. So, but then you meet people, you know, who are tangentially involved in politics who say, did you know about blah, blah, or so-and-so's on with so-and-so, or the story about when, you know, that outrageous affair or, um, and you have to sort of roll your eyes and say, yes, I have heard about that. Uh, yeah, but there's a reason why it hasn't been reported because it's you know either not true or totally unprovable. One of the things that reading the essay, I mean, there's so many good observations in it, but one of the things that well, several things stick with me. One of them was um, where you talk about that Malcolm's just not a respecter of rules and he's a rule breaker. Yeah, um, I think he's look, he's an entrepreneur in in lots and lots of ways, and um, in some of his most um, swashbuckling business um, uh, encounters, what seems to outrage other people with whom he's clashed is that he's done something completely, he's had the effrontery to um, ignore this rule or convention and do something incredibly bold or and sort of or foolhardy or, you know, which is, you know, mostly paid off like over the course of his career on a couple of occasions um really really not paid off um and i think it's like it's this sort of incredible energy and enthusiasm that he has that um accounts i think for a lot of his successes and the fact that you know he's still going after this sort of long and frankly exhausting career i mean in the law in media in it sort of entrepreneurship well frankly if you minerals prospecting you know like the guys he's got a swag of incredibly hilarious stories about the time he's spent you know prospecting for gold in siberia you know and meeting with petty he can speak a bit of Russian, you know, he can speak a bit of Greek, he can speak a bit of Chinese. Well, frankly, sort of... if you delivered this quarterly essay to me and said it's the basis for a film, like a drama, oh, yeah. I would say over the top, yeah. dial it right back down. There's two, no, this is not a believable story that someone can be this swashbuckling. Yeah, and, and I guess in the last few years, you know, um, since he lost the leadership um, of the Liberal Party, um, and everyone has wanted to know, you know, well, why is he hanging around? Because I mean, you remember he quit, he quit his seat or announced he was quitting his seat and then was sort of talked out of it, weirdly enough, um, in part by John Howard. You know, one of the most interesting things about those two people, and I've re- been really fascinated by John Howard's observations um, on two occasions in the last couple of years. One, the remarks that he made after the 2014 budget where he said, something about how um, you've got to level with people about how you're going to, to fix the budget. You've got, to, you've got to make tough choices, but you've got to make sure that it's fair. It was a really interesting intervention that he made that I think made it pretty clear that he thought that was a problem with the 2014 budget. But he also had a press conference after Tony Abbott's um, 
uh, final day on Monday, and um, he talked about he took issue with a couple of um, Abbott's comments about the media, which I thought were kind mm, of interesting, interesting too. But he, for you know, the myth or the the convention about Turnbull and um, Howard is that they've been sworn enemies since the Republican debate. But if you have a look at um, how Howard has actually behaved towards Turnbull, he's really encouraged him at, at some really crucial stages in his political career. So when Malcolm was going for Wentworth, he... Um, Sorry, the Prime Minister was going for Wentworth. Either. It's <laughs> tricky to apply the proper honorific. Um, he, uh, he sent an unofficial kind of sounding out message to Howard to, to ask if you know he was going to pursue this safe seat, whether it would be uh, distasteful to the serving Prime Minister at the time, John Howard. And Howard kind of telegraphed back that it he was that he approved of the idea and then again when um uh turnbull announced that he was going to leave wentworth um after he was tipped out of the um, leadership of the party howard was one of the people who talked him out of it um so i think it's yeah it's interesting that relationship much more nuanced than people generally assume the other bit of the essay that i thought was a really interesting observation was that you know, most people have a fight or flight response. Malcolm has a fight or forget response. Yeah. Yep. I think, do you know, I think people have, and I, I assume just generally born this way, with a certain level of tolerance for conflict, right? And if a person with a high tolerance for conflict and a person with a low tolerance for conflict have a screaming match, those people will walk away from that interaction with entirely differing absolutely like feelings right so and Malcolm Turnbull has a really high tolerance for conflict so he can have a knockdown drag out row and then move on chuff off have lunch and then you know not really take it all that seriously, whereas the other person might feel incredibly wounded for years and years and years and um in some ways, you know, being um, having a high tolerance for conflict is a is a great thing to have in politics because it means that you don't, you know, you get a good sleep at night. You don't lie around worrying about, um, you know, having just had this knockdown, drag out brawl with somebody. But <laughs> sometimes when I was um, researching the quarterly essay, I'd hear accounts from. You know, someone would say, oh, I had this terrible fight with Malcolm and he shrieked at me and called me nine di 19 different kinds of names and, you know, he does really know how to argue. I mean, it's he's scary to have an argument with. He also, um, I noticed, sorry for a slight digression, he also, because of his voice, like he has a very, very good voice. Yeah. Um, it's got a very resonant tone yeah. and he can project it really well without seeming to be speaking loudly. Yes, so it's, even a, it's a lifetime of public speaking. Oh, right? it's a really, really good <laughs> voice. very mellifluous. Very good voice. Um, and so even to interview him, it's hard to... Um, hard to match him purely because of the quality of his voice yeah. actually like it's hard once he gets in full flight it's quite hard to, to interrupt interrupt him, yeah. so i can only imagine that if you're actually having a row with him then you probably just have to sit there in silence well he's got he gets a flow going you know and um and he uses he's one of the best users of language you know in the parliament today probably the best um because 
he is so accustomed to speaking. He is well-read. He draws patterns of expression sort of from the air. So you don't really get that wooden um, formulaic um, address that you often get, you know, you know, in interviews, you know, when you ask someone a question, you can see them going to standard play one, standard play two, standard play three. Um, I think that Malcolm Turnbull is one of those politicians who engages with a question and has the um, capacity to answer in an original way. And um, I, there's also, I think, a degree of uh, confidence for people because you have to be confident in what you're arguing. So I think people sometimes reach for the stock phrases or the slogans or whatever because they're arguing something that they don't have either a lot of depth in or a lot of significant belief in or they're fearful of engaging in a genuine intellectual argument. So the more I tend to find with the people I interview, the more intellectually confident they are, the better they are performing in interviews because they are not scared. And you can tell with um, Turnbull as well because he sometimes he leaps the fence and you you know you'll start asking the interviewer, well, what do you think? I mean, you've done a lot of reading on this, but he's just like, <laughs> I'm bored. <laughs> anyway, gosh, what a week. What a crazy week. How do you actually, how do you approach running the program on a week like that when something oh, so crazy happens? And, you know, the hard thing stressful. is, of course, that on when on Monday night, people were still ducks and drakes all over the place, weren't well, they? Well, and... Um, the no Prime one could get Scott Morrison. <laughs> no. The Prime Minister's office hadn't announced either what time the ballot would take place. Yeah. And so for 7.30, I mean, the issue is, is everyone going to be in the meeting? Mm. So, and then what are we going to fill with? So you have to have a few plans. And also it all happened fairly late. I think Malcolm did his statement at about four. So, you know, it's interesting because in my job, as I'm sure in yours, I do spend a lot of time every week on the phone to various people, having lunch with people, having mm. dinner with people, um, having breakfast with people, just talking to people and building relationships. Yeah. And it's pretty much all so when a story like that happens, people pick up will personally take my call yeah. um, and tell me what's happening or come on the show. And so um, <laughs> because it was all so unclear, it was hard to get people to agree to come on the program. So the first person who agreed that they would come on was Corey Bernardi. Mm -hmm. And he was actually great and said, you know, very happy to come on. The big problem is, what if I'm in the meeting? And I said, look, we'll just have to cross that bridge when we come to it, but that's good. So I've got, you know, one duck in hand. So that's five minutes of the show. Then you've got 25 more to fill. And then it got to, it was after six o'clock. Nobody was locked in. I was watching everyone else to check is anyone else getting people that I'm not getting? Like, am I? And, and you're just yeah. constantly on the phone trying to exhaust every possible option. And uh, I ended up a little after six ringing Peter Costello to say, Can you come on? And he said, well, what do you need me to come on for? I mean, of course both sides are going to put somebody up. And I said, well, they haven't yet, and I'm anxious about what time the meeting will be. And mm. he said, of course they're going to put – they're not going to vacate that space. So um, the first person to come through was uh, Tony Abbott's office said, well, we will be putting up Matthias Corman. So right. then I thought, great, because once you've got one – I love how one... Corman is like <laughs> – I love how Corman is their go-to guy for when things are really cactus, you know. Yeah. He was the day two man on Prince Philip and he was just... I know. I remember sending him a message that day just saying, 
I think you should be knighted just for being day two Prince Philip man. He's like, oh, who knows? Do you know the person who used to do that? Tony Abbott. (laughs) Yeah, I know. He used to be the guy who used to get wheeled out when John Howard was PM who'd have to sort of do the difficult job. You have to be kind of bulletproof. You do. And it's a good Penny Wong practice. Does yeah. it a bit too. So I knew, much like with the killing season, once you had one of Rudd or Gillard, yeah. you were going to get the other one. Yeah. Um, I knew once I had somebody representing the Abbott camp that it was I was going to get someone. So you got Sinodinos. Then I got Sinodinos. Yeah. Um, so then that was a very good, solid show. But I think the final piece fell into place at about quarter to seven, which was, you know. Is that when I came on? That was <laughs> when, <laughs> Finally, the, the big name, Arnold yeah. Crab, locked in. <laughs> You had your fuzzy haired podcast, mate. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Can we get Crab's hair done in time? We've only got 45 minutes. Um, so, yeah, so that was just sort of because 730 is such an important show, and on those big political, if I do say so myself, yeah, I was on say. those big political. <laughs> it's prime time, and it's on those big days. You know, it gets a very big audience. So that night, I think the audience was 1.6 million. So you have to deliver, you know, names. So that was sort of sick making and anxious and then not being sure of the time. And anyway, so it was just all a lot of stress. And then also the other thing that caused me that I sort of had to make a decision on very quickly but was anxious about was who do we put first? Do we put the Abbott camp or the Turnbull camp first on the rundown? So we had a package that Sabra Lane did and then I thought, I sort of weighed it up and I thought, I think we need to go first with why is Malcolm challenging and why why do they think this is necessary and then have have the the Abbott camp rebutting why is this not necessary? Mm. Um, Because I felt like it sort of didn't make logical sense to have it yeah. the other way around. And did, were they all right with that? or? Um, I don't know, actually, but I would suspect that um, that probably both parties would have preferred to go first. So, yeah. you know, but, but I just thought that in a narrative sense it made more sense to put it that way. Um, so, yeah, and then it was all uh, then down to Canberra, you know, for the next day and after the vote had happened and all of the rest of it. So, yeah, it's quite it's, – those days are exciting, but you feel like – like I felt like after two days, because then, of course, trying to land big guests for the subsequent days. Mm. Um, I feel like I was aging about five years every day from the anxiety <laughs> of trying to talk people into coming on. And, of course, um, although, you know, Malcolm hasn't done a one-on-one interview with anyone yet, the non-stop <laughs> – just borderline harassment of um, Malcolm and his staff, <laughs> where there's a line where you sort of think, well, the guy is trying to get across being Prime Minister. Does he really need another text message from me? Going, yes, he does. <laughs> Can you do 7.30 tonight? It's interesting, isn't it, that he hasn't done a one-on-one interview yet? And, well, it's less its less unusual that um, the outgoing Prime Look, Minister it's, hasn't. It's fasc- all that stuff I find really interesting, the calculations that they make and that they try to think about. Something politicians always want is they want something to talk about so that mm. they've got an agenda that they mm. can come on with. But, you know, I always think that it's better to go out like I would have gone on on the first day because yeah. I think you're always best to go out in a position of strength and mm. to put your sort of front foot forward. And on the first day, nobody's going to expect you to have detail of mm. your economic plan. Mm. So you can make your big, sweeping, inspiring message. Mm. I remember... Um, get in before you've made Christopher Pine defence minister. That get in before everyone cracks it over the cab to <laughs> reshuffle. Yeah. Um, do you remember when the Simon Crean just happened when yeah. he tried to get Gillard rolled. Oh, God. Yeah. So Julia Gillard has, you know, acted in a very sort of um, bold manner. She's just put, called on a spill and mm. said, right, put up or shut up. Mm. And then they've lost. You know, Kevin mm. hasn't challenged. They've lost it. Um, I said That to, was surely the most <laughs> just <laughs> dreadful, oh, 
God. It was, yeah. So I, of course, rang Prime Minister's office and said, Prime Minister, available for tonight. And they said no. And I said, wow, I'm, I am stunned that you would not be putting her up. She's just seen off Kevin mm. Rudd. They're in disarray. She's in a real position of strength. I'm mystified why you don't want to put mm. her up on primetime television tonight. And they that was, I think, on a Thursday. They The first thing they did was Kyle and Jackie O the next morning, which if you're trying to look prime ministerial, that's not the space. And then they rang and wanted her to come on on the Monday night, which she did. But by then, um, half a dozen cabinet ministers had held press yeah. conferences to resign yeah. and said all of the reasons they thought Julia Gillard was hopeless. Yeah. So I had all of that material to put to her on the Monday, when if she'd actually come on on the first day, she could have said, and if you don't like it, you can resign if you're yeah, not right. part of my team. And then you're on the <laughs> front foot. So I... Yeah, I'm always sort of surprised why people don't sort of strike. But but I have a different agenda, of course, because I want people to come on the shows mm. whenever mm. I want them, and they mm. have their own strategies and you know way of thinking about things. So who knows what? I wonder if um uh yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the Turnbull tactic vis-a-vis um, media is going to be, and whether it's going to be different from Tony Abbott's. I mean, um. How many times did you interview Tony Abbott in the end? Actually, people people would say Tony Abbott was not available, but actually he was was not as available as John Howard, but I reckon he was easily as available as Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd, if not more, um, four times a year approximately. Mm. Um, I've interviewed him myself three times this year, and I think he came on once when I was away on holidays. Um, So he's actually been pretty available. Actually, an example of um, somebody coming on on a day to try to assert strength was he came on on the day of that spill in February. Mm. And I thought that was actually sensible because it's a bad day because, of course, your colleagues have tried to roll you, but I think you get brownie points for fronting up to do a difficult interview and to then try to re-establish yourself. You're probably not going to come out of it, you know, one nil, but if you come out of it nil all, then you sort of have won anyway, basically, because you've neutralised it, you've answered the difficult questions, then you just move on and you try to get back Mm. to business as usual. Um, So, yeah, Tony actually was pretty available contrary to what people actually thought when he was unavailable was when he was opposition leader he did fewer interviews yeah yeah yeah. um because and again that is a legitimate strategy people um want to be a small target because particularly when there's a lot of disarray on the other side and so they're happy to leave you know labor to be just wallowing in their own mess at the time um which is sort of probably like what bill shorten's been doing Mm. so so you're going to get a bible and keep it in the studio (laughs) just in case scott morrison comes in i I must say it just blows my mind how discourteous some like i just it just cracks me up how remember after the budget there was a, a small but concerted mainly led by the australian kind of thing about how you were really biased against hockey and yeah um, and then another one with the pm i think you were rude to him recently <laughs> um and uh and then you know went through all of the processes and you know the answer popped out by whatever authority had reviewed it that um it was fine but i was just the other day listening to ray hadley just carry on with scott morrison and demand that he 
swear something on a Bible and oh my god, the he hung up on John Alexander a few days earlier because he's in the middle of frothing about you know all of these people who voted against Tony Abbott and how they must all be hauled before him and um, I guess you know Ray Hadley's not a journalist, so he's not held by the same standards. But also, I just think like why why do you? I mean, I know he has a certain audience that perhaps you want to reach, but. I don't know, like if you're going to go on those spaces, that's what the space is, if you know what I mean. It's it's not so much about Ray Hadley's trying to facilitate Scott Morrison getting his point of view out. It's Ray, it's the Ray Hadley show, mm, you know, mm, like the, Alan, part Jones, of the, the Alan Jones show. It's about Ray Hadley or it's about Alan Jones and you are the side act, you're not the headline act sort of thing. So it's like a tour of duty for politicians, isn't it? Like go and get yeah. yelled at by Alan Jones. Yeah. Look at um, that like fabulous one... Um, when um, Malcolm Turnbull went on Alan Jones and that was quite a spectacular clash really Um, and it was interesting to hear Turnbull really not giving any quarter because there is a tendency towards obsequiousness that really Mm. creeps in to politicians of either stripe that go Mm. on Jones because he's got this sort of mythical kind of Mm. um, almost superstitious quality for federal politicians, I reckon. It's interesting because the audience would be probably, what, I don't actually know, 100,000? Like, that's a very small audience if you compare it to television. Yeah, I'm not sure what the listenership is. I don't know. Um, The... What was I going to say about, sorry, you saying them going on, being obsequious? Yeah, I mean, I guess the main thing is you want to get your message out in as many ways as possible. Speaking of people getting their message out and their, as we say in the modern parlance, brand, did you catch Mike Baird, the New South Wales Premier, live tweeting The Bachelor? <laughs> no, I didn't. I oh. missed that as I've missed the entire series of The Bachelor because much as I think I might enjoy elements of it, I think something in me just says, too silly. Well, I hadn't watched any of it, but I noticed Mike Baird started tweet live tweeting it because he was <laughs> sick on sick on the couch with the flu. Anyway, it was really really funny because you know, sort of like me, I've got no idea about it and yeah. I'm uncool, and so I was relating to his uncool um, and just watching it as if he was watching something so yeah. alien to him. But it was just so interesting because I mean, Mike Baird is you know probably can just be Premier for life, can't he, if he wants to be, for either party at this point. Like, he just seems so unassailable and so popular. Anyway, so he's live-tweeting The Bachelor. Any other politician possibly would have thought, mm, will I get in trouble for, like, live-tweeting a show like The Bachelor? Da, da, da. I mean, Mike Baird does it. It's actually legitimately funny, and everyone's talking about it. And I was just laughing, thinking, imagine if the New South Wales opposition leader, Luke Foley, had gone to bed early. Oh, at last, Mike Baird messes up. He's live-tweeting The Bachelor. I'm in this. I'm in this. And then, of course, you wake up. Oh, Everyone's it's a like, smash hit, yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, because the stuff that you can get away with when you're on top and you're mm. you're going well is stuff that you would be crucified for if you were just travelling in Completely. situation normal to a bit. Imagine if nose. Julia Gillard had live-tweeted The Bachelor. Well, I mean, she would have been sectioned, basically. Mm. And, I mean, even like if Bill Shorten did it, yeah, it just – it would be – the whole program for Sean McAuliffe. Absolutely. And then, yeah. yeah, it's fascinating that, isn't it? There was a piece in it's The Economist. The starting point is, is really kind of relevant here. Absolutely. There was a piece in The Economist many years ago. Um, it was around the time Brendan Nelson was the opposition leader, and it was talking about one of the hardest things to do in politics is once there is an established narrative about you, yeah. that you're a hapless bumbler or you're a charismatic whatever, mm. um, it is very, very difficult to change the narrative. So Mike Baird's narrative now, 
now is that he's the nice boy next door that everyone likes. And so that's so when he live tweets The Bachelor, it goes with that. Mm. Whereas, um, you know, other people who don't have such a positive one, you can't, you try that and people view it through the prism of, or you're a try hard or you're, mm. a, you're a phony mm. or you're a faker or whatever. Mm. Um, and yeah, Brendan Nelson, for whatever reason, just ended up getting that sort of thing around him that he was a bit of a, you know, bumbler mm. and then you can't turn it around even if it's unfair and it's only based on a few maybe because he had malcolm turnbull ring him up every day saying you're a bumbler <laughs> you're a <laughs> um, i was so, thinking yeah. about brendan nelson the other day just because i remember like when brendan nelson was the leader of the liberal party and he was being sort of stalked by malcolm turnbull i was thinking about it because of what tony abbott was saying about how he couldn't get any clear air and he's being undermined every step of the way and i was just thinking look um I remember when Malcolm Turnbull was really stalking Brendan Nelson and there was nothing, like it was unmistakable. You could sense him like looming behind Nelson and he, he, he really did. And I covered this in the essay. He did ring up Brendan and say, look, you're terrible at this. Why don't you just resign? <laughs> tactful or mysterious about it like it was a real front stabbing <laughs> and oh so funny so the difference between then and you know even this year is so profound because I think that is probably one of the things that's changed about Malcolm Turnbull is that he's at least a bit more tactful or you know I don't know much less kind of wildly impatient and god let me have a go get away <laughs> so he has learnt some lessons then oh totally i think so yeah i right. think um yeah well one of the really interesting interviews of this week actually um which i thought was really fascinating and reminded me why george brandis is so interesting is with george brandis now you don't hear from brandis all that often you know um these days um, except on sort of portfolio-related things, which is a pity because he really has such a great um, understanding of political history, particularly Liberal Party history, and he's got a really great brain. But he was making the point... Um, is this not the one on 7.30? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, hang on, wasn't it AM? Uh, oh. I don't know. I think I just read the transcript of it and I, right. I heard a grab from it right. and then I went and read the transcript, but I'm right. tan my heart. I can't remember. Really <laughs> I, I actually thought it was on AM, but anyway, right. where he was saying, did you interview him? I did, yeah. Oh, but, okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if he did anything else. Obviously, I admire all your work. <laughs> when he was talking about how, um, uh, how Howard had been a, a failure as a leader the first time round and how... Um, uh, who else? Oh, Menzies had also been a failure as a leader the right. first time round. Was that with you? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I did so many interviews. Okay, I can't multiple fail. I yeah. can't remember who was interviewing him. Sorry, I do and you can't remember George, what he said. I can't remember what he said. <laughs> but it was a really, it was a funny defence, like because an accurate one, I think. Mm. He was making the point that that just because you were crap at it the first time round doesn't mean you can't learn and be better at it the second time round. Well, somebody. Now, Sorry, somebody who I won't name who's a senior Liberal Party figure, I was asking, how do you think Malcolm will go second time around? Yeah. Because he did balls it up the first time around. And this person said, people who are smart when they do it the second time around do it better. He said Kevin Rudd did it better. Jeff Kennett did it better. John Howard did it better. Mm. So smart people do learn. So mm. his theory was that he thought that Malcolm had learned. 
Mm, that's interesting. Now, um, we're at the half hour, so I'm going to wrap it up, but I did want to mention just one other thing that was around in the week of Malcolm, which was very amusing, which was an extract from the biogra- autobiography of oh, Steve, Steve Kilby, the oh. lead singer of the church. Um, God, who, so funny. It was really funny. And it's from a book that was written now, you know, several years mm. ago. And it was that when he was at school, he was a champion debater. He was on the ACT's, you know, top debating team. This is Kilby. Yeah. Kilby. And they came up to New South Wales to compete and they competed against a team which included the young Malcolm Turnbull. <laughs> and he said he just wiped the floor <laughs> with us. Like, they were just so superior. It was like, you know, just... He said, I was quite a good speaker, but I could sit there, I sat there, just watched him just making contemptuous notes with a flick of his pen, getting ready to tear me limb from limb. <laughs> and then they had another round and the New South Wales team came down to the ACT and who happens to be billeted with Steve, what's his name? Kilby. Kilby, then Malcolm Turnbull. And so they go off to the debate. Again, the floor gets, Malcolm just wipes the floor with them all. And uh, they go out for some drinks afterwards. Malcolm tries to crack onto one of the girls who was on Kilby's team, who she ends up telling Malcolm to F off. Um, And Malcolm is enraged by this in the car on the way home. And (laughs) Kilby says... um, just trying to think of a way to impress Malcolm, who obviously is, you know, made for politics and is going to be Prime Minister one day. Says, I've been invited to join the country party. And Malcolm looks at him contemptuously and says, as what? <laughs> I love that. And he goes on to be Steve Kilby of the church. And the great line is that, you know, at the end of this drive, which is very silent from that point on with Kilby feeling about this big and Malcolm fuming about being, you know, rejected by this young lady. They get home and Malcolm, and there's this note that's full of these hilarious observations from Kilby, like, um, oh, is it possible he was wearing a smoking jacket? I think he may be wearing a smoking <laughs> jacket. And um, apparently then, you know, they get out of the car and um, Malcolm then proceeds to completely charm um, Kilby's <laughs> mum, while Kilby is just like, oh, God. And he, just, then... he describes him as a know-it-all mum charmer. Yeah. <laughs> and then the mum says, you know, after, they, after Malcolm's moved out, oh, that boy will be Prime Minister one day. <laughs> I love, I mean, you know, Malcolm Turnbull was friends with all sorts of people then at university, you know, like he, there's a great story. He was good friends with, um, uh, Bob Carr, and in fact, um, when Malcolm first asked Lucy Hughes out on a date, he asked her um, to do a double date with Bob and Helena Carr because oh. um, he wanted, you know, to kind of provide impressive friends or whatever. And there's some hilarious story which I haven't, I think, written about, but about the about Bob and about Malcolm. Um, putting on a dinner party for their girlfriends and thinking we'll serve abalone, <laughs> buying this abalone, and then just boiling them until they were like rubber balls. Oh, and just like, here you go, oh, girls. But anyway, um, but also Malcolm was quite good friends with Bob Ellis at um, at university. Yeah. They were yeah. Uh, often out on the Randhan together. There you go. Mm. Um, all right, well, we will uh, leave this one here. Yeah, we've really jibbered, haven't we? Yeah, so, yeah. But anyway. Thanks. And there's still so much unsaid. So much unsaid. Anyway, see you next time. Bye.